Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, our nation's capital, where the prime minister is in the midst of renegotiating NAFTA, doing a lot of other things in the Conservative Party of Canada has had a lot of disagreements with the Prime Minister, perhaps unsurprisingly. But one of the things that I've found really interesting in my career, especially teaching at the undergraduate level, is that the term conservative and what conservatism actually means is very different here in Canada than it is in the United States, and especially with what is going on currently in the political situation down south. I find that a lot of students are conflating too much the conservative party of Canada and the small c conservatism of the United States, which tends to be very different and the history of it tends to be different. So I thought it'd be a tremendous opportunity to bring on today's guest. who has got a new book just out called paving the way for Reagan, the influence of conservative media on us foreign policy, independent historian, Lawrence R. Jerdom, who will call LJ for the podcast. Hello, LJ. How are you? Hi, Sean. How are you? Thanks for letting me uh, stop in. Oh, well, thanks for, so much for doing this. Uh, looking forward to talking to you. First thing I want to talk about is just sort of building off what I, I said off the top there, that conservatism for us here in Canada means something specific. Similarly with liberalism, uh, there, there's a specific meaning that I find, at least when you study politics in both countries, they mean slightly different things because the political spectrum, I would argue, is a little more left here overall than it is in the United States. But for you as a historian of American conservatism, how would you summarize conservatism to, say, a foreign audience who might not be overly familiar with the specifics of the way conservatism has come to power in the United States? Well, I think I would look at, at conservatism as a essentially a, a very large clock, let's say, with, with a lot of of moving parts and they're essentially parts that don't always work in sync with one another. My area specifically, which is sort of the history of conservatism from an intellectual point of view. And when I say from an intellectual point of view, it essentially had three moving parts when say uh, national review, which is one of the magazines I write about started in 1955 or human events, which started in 1944, essentially we had libertarianism, which one can translate as free market economic ideas, a social conservatism, which is essentially dealing uh, with social issues or the nature of man. And then the third branch of it was, uh, literally was, because it's, it's no longer, since the Cold War is no longer with us, anti-communism and essentially anti-communism was the one core of intellectual conservatism that essentially bound all of uh, the three branches together i also write about commentary which is a magazine still with us today also starting in 1944 that was essentially the oracle rather the organ of of neoconservatism those who became disenchanted with American liberalism uh, in the uh, late 60s and early 70s and subsequently moved over to the right 
uh, and very much embraced the policies of President Reagan during the 1980s. Hmm. Uh, there were other aspects of conservatism, I guess, in regards to your listeners, many have characterized President Trump's ideas as coming from what has been called the alt-right. There, There is something that was known as the old right, which essentially was a uh, series of ideas that were uh, around during the 1930s, or rather reached prominence during the 1920s and 30s, ideas that many view President Trump as endorsing ideas like protectionism, ideas like uh, and ideas like isolationism. So that's kind of in a, a broad brush of, of some of the work that I have done and, and uh, I guess a brief sketch of what intellectual conservatism has been really starting in the 1930s and moving forward up through the 1960s and 70s. Once President Reagan left the White House, the conservative movement inherited what one might call an embarrassment of riches, where you had a movement that subsequently grew exponentially, and along with the conservative media became kind of a cottage industry. So now we have not only those three branches that I mentioned earlier, but we have things like paleoconservative, which defined by the ideas put forward by Pat Buchanan when he ran for president as a primary challenger to George H.W. Bush, uh, and also are emblematic of the ideas President Trump represents. We had compassionate conservatism, which people uh, derive or, or kind of criticize as big government conservatism, which we saw under the uh, auspices of George H.W. Bush. I'm sorry, George W. Bush. And there are things like that. But these old strains like isolationism, and protectionism still obviously are very much in vogue today. So we have also expanded in terms of conservative media. It used to be National Review, Human Events, and Commentary. Now we've got here in the United States the Weekly Standard. We've got um, the uh, American Conservative. We've got dozens of websites such as townhall.com. We've got Breitbart. And, of course, we've got this incredible uh, proliferation of uh, electronic media, talk radio, and, of course, Fox News. Right, as well. It's not partisan always, right, in, in terms of parties. right? It, it's sort of the idea of conservatism historically has fluctuated between the two parties, right? Because when I think of someone like Herbert Hoover even, you know, when I, I study the 1930s versus someone like Ronald Reagan, they struck me as incredibly different people and in terms of policies and, and their approaches to thing, but both are Republicans. So the idea of conservative sort of seems to float between the parties historically. Would I be? Is that yeah, fair? no, I think you're very, much, you're very much right. In fact, uh, Herbert Hoover was 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 derided by those on the right. Uh, he was frequently under attack by many of those on uh, on the right. Obviously, his view, uh, mainstream view, is of this dour personality responsible for uh, the Great Depression. Obviously, he did sign uh, Smoot-Hawley tariff and and other things. But Hoover, I, I believe, like Reagan, uh, was far more pragmatic than I, I think a lot of people tend to view him uh, 
today. So, so yes, I, I think it varies. And, and conservatism, I think over time, uh, it has become far more ideological, certainly in political practice, than it was previously. And I think you can look at perhaps the nomination of, of President Trump as emblematic of that, we don't seem to, and of course, it's what's also emblematic is of the uh, of just this dysfunction that exists within within the Congress, uh, particularly in regards to the Republican Party. I mean, granted, it's been accused of walking in lockstep with the president, but there are still a lot of tensions uh, within within uh, the party and within the direction uh, of the party, and that's why I. I believe that you'll see a primary challenger to uh, President Trump in 2020, because there are quite a number of, of folks within the party who are dissatisfied with uh, with the president's policies. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point, because the framework of what is conservative, it, it can't really be defined then by a single party. And certainly we've seen that in Canada, you know, the, the 1990s, we have the Reform Party, and we have the Conservative Party. And now, the the new party, the People's Party of Canada, which is going to be an alternative conservative party. So there's always been this alternative voice in this country, but in a two-party system, you're right, it gets a little fragmented and it gets a little confusing as to if this is the viewed as the conservative side of the aisle, but then what does that mean? And within that, you have all these different layers to it. And that's why I think this book is so interesting, because the way in which the media covers these things and a conservative press would look at things like foreign policy would vary as well. So as you mentioned, the book looks primarily at three publications, Commentary, Human Events, and the National Review. And it has the years here, uh, 1964 to 1980. So I'm a little curious. Obviously, the book is paving the way for Reagan. That's the title. So obviously, the end point of 1980 with that election but how do we start in 1964? What is sort of the genesis of this idea to follow these publications through that 16-year period? Well, 1964 was a big moment for the Republican Party. It was really the first time that you had a conservative. And when I talk about conservative, I talk about the ideas that were represented by human events and national review. Commentary was a uh, before it became a neo neoconservative magazine, which occurred really, I would say, in the late 60s, it was a uh, it was a traditionally mainstream Cold War anti-communist liberal magazine. So they really didn't have much of a role in my book up until maybe, let's say, four years later. But in 1964, you had Barry Goldwater, who was someone who epitomized many of the ideas that were written about in um, human events and national review ideas, these traditional ideas of libertarianism and social conservatism, and, and most importantly, anti-communism. Uh, Goldwater was very unhappy with the uh, mainstream policy of containment. He believed in things like uh, the United Nations, and believed that ultimately not enough was being done to roll back international communism around the world. He believed the war in Vietnam was not being fought sufficiently to the point that the United States actually 
uh, was using all of its military advantage to achieve victory. And these two points really mirrored much of what the conservative press believed, and they very much supported him and his ideas during, uh, obviously, that uh, very much one-sided losing campaign. So in, in doing that, why then would the publication, or, or how then do the publications ultimately have a wide influence? Like, how do they come to these positions? Because the way I look at it is very much the answer to these questions tends, tends to be money. So are, are these publications being founded because they're, there's a, a market for it? Or is it sort of in the Roger Ailes model of, I have a political perspective and I want to get it out? Yes, I, I think it's in that, the, it's the latter point. When William F. Buckley Jr. founded National Review in 1955, he had done it with the intention of creating a magazine of conservative opinion. Back in the 50s or the post-war era, there really weren't any uh, magazines to push, put forward an alternative political view. I mean, obviously, you had all of the major mainstream publications, Time, Newsweek, The New York Times, etc. All of these, let's say, had a liberal bent to them. Time was somewhat conservative because Henry Luce was a fairly conservative man. But there, there was nothing that offered an alternative weekly uh, point of view where those who had, let's say, right of center opinions could pick up a publication, look at ideas and say, well, yes, that's exactly uh, what I agree with. But and Buckley essentially wanted to create a magazine that was, in his view, kind of the image of what the nation magazine had been uh, during the presidency of FDR, a magazine that had the opportunity to reach uh, key opinion makers in Congress and those who worked within government who had the ability to affect policy. And Buckley hoped that those um, elites who read his magazine over on the right would have the ability to affect policy and possibly follow some of the ideas that he and his colleagues were writing about. And that was ultimately the reason as to why uh, his magazine formed, and I believe why the other magazines formed as well, even though a magazine like Human Events, which was a tabloid-style magazine written very much in the tradition, or rather Breitbart was, very, was created and looks very much like in the tradition of Human Events, where you had a big, bold headline, some really powerful editorials that uh, really were designed to gain one's uh, attention. That, one could say, was for the mainstream, but not even that so much, because those who read Human Events were really sort of what one could call the foot soldiers of the conservative movement, the conservative activists, those people who worked in Washington, who worked in government, who were extremely focused on things like uh, the various uh, a race in the Senate or a race in the Congress or how a bill uh, was progressing. They saw all these magazines were available uh, for subscription. They were available uh, at the local newsstand. But it was really unlike Fox News, unlike talk talk radio. They were not these magazines were not created for uh, a broad circulation or a broad public consumption. So if they're not for this broad consumption, as you say, how do they find their audience? 
It seems when you're talking to say, you know, conservative opinions, alternative perspectives, that that feels very almost inside Washington or inside politics. And there wouldn't be a mass appeal for it. And that's cool if they're not trying to get a mass appeal for it. But in an immediate environment where to print stuff and to get it across the country, if they're trying to get it across the country, that seems incredibly expensive to do that. So how are they finding an audience and targeting the people who want this alternative perspective or or would have sort of this inside knowledge or or a vested interest in conservative ideology? On the money issue, I think the point, your point is, is well taken. And certainly um, National Review, Bill Buckley was a very popular figure. Uh, He was somebody who uh, had a uh, three times a week column in dozens of newspapers. He was on television once a week on firing line. He was a very sociable and uh, ebullient personality who seemed to know everybody all over the world. And therefore, he was also able to get quite a bit of, uh, of funding from many of these conservative philanthropists for his magazine, Buckley's magazine and that Buckley and National Review were a bit different from human events. National Review really was a magazine of conservative opinion. You had a number of people who essentially were representative of the different branches of the conservative movement. People like James Burnham, who was a prominent uh, foreign policy expert, had been a former communist, wrote about the Cold War. Russell Kirk, the very well-known conservative academic. Frank Meyer, another a former uh, communist who also uh, had quite a quite a following among members of the right and over in human events, which really was a newspaper that covered the weekly week to week activities around conservative Washington. So you really could pick up human events and maybe read about stuff, as you said, kind of inside Washington stuff that you might not have seen in your daily newspaper if you were really interested about that sort of thing. But the key to all of these magazines was ultimately they wanted influence. They wanted to uh, create and achieve uh, political power. And by doing that, their only way of doing that was ultimately to have their publications reach and be read by prominent congressmen and senators and people running for office who ultimately agreed with their agenda and could then work to have those policies carried out. Okay, now I don't want to sound too altruistic here, but for that to happen, for there to be that influence, do they not have to have the constituents of these people support them and then that would have the politicians there it's all well and good to say to a congressperson you know we believe in this position whatever it is but don't they also have to then have their constituents be in on it so wouldn't you want a wide broad appeal in order for there not only to be the pressure from the magazine that the magazine is saying this but maybe then constituents would write in and say that as well so it's sort of coming from two different angles Yes, but what I think what what these magazines were very good at, particularly human events, because human events, their main editorial was written by a gentleman named Alan Riskind. And Alan Riskind had a very was a was a very uh, sharp reporter, had a very sharp and powerful writing style. And he would often 
dwell on the same subject week to week. He would include the latest news, but he would always return to whatever his main argument was, be against detente, and he would essentially make that argument, but he would constantly flicker in new uh, developments that had occurred, and the same thing with things like the Panama Canal. And if you want to look at it in sort of a almost a uh, a messaging type of thing, ultimately those senators and congressmen who would read uh, Alan Riskin's opinion pieces could then do a number of things. They could put them in the congressional record as, quote unquote, their opinion on a particular issue. And they could also, and perhaps they did do this. I have no, I have not, uh, I did not focus on this when I did my research, but perhaps when they went back and they spoke to their constituents, they could use these foundations of these ideas that they were reading about on a weekly basis and filter them into a number of speeches that they might be giving to certain constituents or or those voting blocks that they believed were important uh, for them to achieve another term in either the House or Senate. So that was sort of how these magazines worked and how ultimately they were able to create an ideology or a roadmap that these conservative politicians were able to use in order to clarify or crystallize their ideas about one foreign policy issue or another, and ultimately help them give them some intellectual heft when going back to campaign uh, against the Democrats. So in a sense, their broad appeal would be through the politicians. Yes, that's right. So it's more of a case then of the, the it's sort of a chicken and the egg then, I guess, sort of where does the influence or, or where does the idea come from? And how how seriously then did politicians take them can we can we really assess how influential these things were well it's 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 interesting i think one of the things that i found in in researching this book are a couple of things one was the frequency in which politicians like strom thurmond who was a longtime senator from south carolina philip crane who was a longtime congressman or john uh ashbrook who was a longtime Congressman from Ohio, all three of these gentlemen were very much on the right, were very much outliers, not Thurman, not so much, but certainly Ashbrook and uh, Crane in their day were very much sort of outliers from a conservative point of view. They were sort of the, uh, let's just say they were sort of the Ted Cruz of uh, of their day. This is before, obviously, Cruz ran for president uh, back in 2016. But ultimately, uh, these these three gentlemen put all of these they, every time they would read a human events article, a National Review article, it would go into the congressional uh, record. Human events was an interesting publication in that it was ultimately uh, a consortium, a consortium of different conservative columnists, columnists who were frequently read by many people around the country and. On more than one occasion, people like Thurmond, Ashbrook, Crane, others would write columns that would appear in human events. And that was one way in which they were able to reach the like-minded constituent. The other uh, way that they were influential was on the two American presidents that I write about in the book, Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. Uh, Richard Nixon always had an ambivalent a relationship with members of the right, really going back 
to the early 1960s, the right never really trusted Nixon. He was far too pragmatic and non-ideological for them. But as he um, grew in, as he gained political power, particularly when he decided to run again for the presidency in 68, he knew he needed those members of the um, right-wing intelligentsia to support him because of the amount of weight that they carried with the hardcore conservative constituency. And um, more on more than one occasion, when the right or around National Review or Human Events would write something uncomplimentary about him, he would call someone like a Pat Buchanan, somebody like a Henry Kissinger, to go off and try to meet with people like Bill Buckley or Alan Riskin and others and try to essentially contain these little fires that would pop up every now and again because he was extremely nervous of losing that group of of intellectuals who he knew had the ability to cause a great deal of trouble for him with the right. Ronald Reagan was very different in that regard. Ronald Reagan had begun reading National Review and Human Events from the time he first began working for General Electric in the 50s. And because he was someone who at the time was afraid of flying and chose to either drive or um, most of the time take a train to these numerous to visit these numerous GE plants that he was instructed with to uh, visit around the country. Many of these ideas that subsequently came to fruition during the Reagan presidency were ideas that he gained a greater understanding of while reading Human Events and National Review. When he was in the White House, Reagan frequently met with uh, Bill Buckley. He frequently went to events that were honoring National Review. He actually even gave an event honoring Human Events in the White House, which was something that most of those who surrounded uh, President Reagan, who were, let's say, uh, country club Republicans, uh, were not uh, particularly enthusiastic about, being that they viewed these magazines as far too right-wing and far too conspiratorial and uh, unreliable. And they believed that magazines like that gave Reagan a bad image with the mainstream Republicans. But Reagan loved those magazines. He believed that they had championed uh, his political rise, which they indeed had done, and he believed in the ideas that they advocated. So some echoes as to what's going on today, certainly, with the, yeah. the relationship between traditional, in air quotes, Republicans and the sort of more the, the, the farther right publications. Now, the book, of course, is about foreign policy, and you mentioned, uh, of course, Richard Nixon and Reagan. And uh, I want to talk about arguably the two most important uh, foreign policy events in each of their presidencies. So with Nixon, it's got to be the way in which he deals with Vietnam. And certainly correct me if I'm wrong on that, but uh, I, I would suggest that Vietnam is certainly the biggest foreign policy issue of his tenure as president. So how did the conservative media and these publications influence Nixon as it related to the war in Vietnam? Well, I think I, I think you're right. I think Vietnam was a significant uh, event in the Nixon presidency. I think the whole 
uh, policy of detente was the which uh, in, involved the opening of China and the negotiations with the Soviet Union was the other big uh, yeah. foreign policy event um, of, of the presidency. But Vietnam was something that remember Nixon had been elected primarily, certainly had been endorsed by members of the right because of those strong anti-communist uh, bona fides that he had that he had the right. And the magazine specifically were very unhappy with the way the war was being conducted. They did not believe that um, Lyndon Johnson was being aggressive enough in uh, in regards to what uh, was being done. And essentially on, on Vietnam, they were early on quite happy with what Nixon was doing. They had advocated consistent bombing of, of, of North Vietnam. They had uh, argued that. Uh, American troops needed to pursue those uh, Viet Cong troops into hamlets in Laos and in Cambodia. And, and that's essentially what uh, what Nixon decided to do, including his uh, his bombing and subsequent invasion of of uh, of Cambodia. And so they very much liked that part of it. They didn't like ultimately what he ended up doing, which was subsequently withdrawing American troops and and, uh, conducting a peace process where those on the right ultimately believed America or he specifically Nixon uh, abandoned the South Vietnamese, essentially leaving a country that was completely naked and open to takeover by the North Vietnamese, which is essentially what happened. They were very uncomfortable with Henry Kissinger. They didn't uh, didn't like Kissinger. The right couldn't stand uh, Kissinger. They didn't think he was sincere. They always thought he was playing two sides against the middle, very much the same with what they thought about President Nixon. So in the end, they were very disappointed with what Nixon did in Vietnam. Those on the right believed that you were if you were going to fight a war, you were you would fight you should fight the war to win. And the right believed that Nixon ultimately did not do that sufficiently. But that sort of goes against to what the general public was feeling by that point, right? So it's sort of this is going against the mainstream public opinion, maybe not mainstream right-wing opinion. So how much of the anti-war sentiment, which by that point had really overtaken the the vast majority, or no, not the vast majority, probably the more majority of Americans' opinions on the war. How much do these publications, if they're even if they're disappointed in Nixon, do they acknowledge that in the the, the tide of public opinion and how it's going, or are they still trying to advocate against that? Oh well, they they thought that the uh, that the anti-war protesting was detrimental right. and respond and right. partially responsible for the loss of the war. And were extremely critical of all of the anti-war protests and all of the uh, various personalities who uh, participated uh, in them. You know, I mean, they and, and in constant columns and constant articles, they they said numerously un, numerous uncomplimentary things about all of the anti-war protesters and and what was going on and and uh, this played into a number of uh, the rights problems with a lot of social issues that were going on at the time, including things like civil rights, the various uh, gender debates that were going on, women's rights, 
it all kind of played into their view that things had gone terribly wrong and 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 uh, something needed to be done about it. And does that influence the way in which they approach Nixon on other issues? And certainly the the one that comes to my mind is Watergate. I, I can't remember who said this, but I've I've heard it be said that people have suggested that if there was a Fox News in the 1970s, that Nixon wouldn't have had to have resigned. Uh, and yet here we have your your profiling three pretty high profile publications that are conservative. Does the disappointment with Vietnam influence Watergate or any other issue? in terms of their support for Nixon as a president? On most things, certainly on things domestically, the right was very, very unhappy with Nixon, except on things such as law and order, uh, right. which they very much approved of what Nixon was doing, but essentially on issues like what uh, the family assistance plan, uh, price controls, they were extremely uh, unhappy uh, with Nixon. They were extremely unhappy with Nixon's decision to go to China, uh, his negotiations with the Soviet Union. They viewed all of this as an enormous sellout and essentially uh, a sellout and uh, an intellectual dishonesty from a man who had sold himself as this devoted and passionate anti-communist. I mean, frequently National Review, who was always who, who had a marvelous sense of humor uh, would frequently during the China uh, period, I think it was National Review or Human Events, one of the magazines, Freak would, would had a series of articles entitled uh, Richard Nixon, This Is Your Life, where they would uh, essentially have these quotes that Nixon had said back in the day. And then if you reflected those quotes with what Nixon was actually doing, it was like a completely different Richard Nixon. So they were were very unhappy with Nixon. They they supported most of the right supported Nixon in regards to Watergate. Eventually, like everything else, they realized this was a, a, a disaster and 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 there's no point in, in continuing. But they certainly were with him early on. But as things began to trickle out more and more, eventually uh, there was no point in 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 staying the course. Right. And then when we get into the Gerald Ford period, is there any change? Does, does Gerald Ford sort of ease anything or do they just see him as a continuation? Well, Gerald Ford chose to keep Kissinger. That's that's sort of the big uh, that during this what one might call the Nixon interregnum. Ford kept Kissinger. He kept detente. He continued to engage with the Soviet Union, continued to engage with China. So, no, they just saw it as a continuation of the Nixon period and were were pretty severe on on Ford, just as they had been on Nixon. And and Ford always viewed himself as a as a conservative, but he really uh, had no interest and uh, in in any of these magazines. He couldn't care less about uh, conservative opinion. Uh, he just essentially. Uh, chose to pursue policies that, that he believed in. And it didn't really. In fact, I don't even think when I, I spent a lot of time trying to find who at the Ford White House would have been in charge of dealing with uh, conservative intellectuals. And, and I just nobody seemed to know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that said it. So I think that said it all. 
Yes. Well, yes. I, I think Gerald Ford certainly has a reputation as being somewhat anti-intellectual, if that's a, a fair way to put that. So maybe not surprising there. And then, you know, the, the Jimmy Carter years, you know, I find it often when you're looking at partisans or, you know, conservatives, liberals, whatever it is, that they it's easier when it's in opposition to something that so in Jimmy in the Jimmy Carter years, it, it, it seems pretty obvious that it would just be in opposition to pretty much everything he's doing. Yes, yes. And going back to Ford for a moment, yeah, I yeah. think that you that you can see the continual opposition to to Nixon by by two things. One, one, the fact that Ronald Reagan ran for the nomination in 76 against Ford and the fact that human events was right in his corner during that whole process. I mean, they were big Reagan supporters. They followed the campaign incredibly closely, constantly covered his speeches, constantly wrote favorable articles about Reagan and and were very, very unhappy with what Ford and Kissinger were doing, particularly in regards to things like detente, and were very, very supportive of Reagan uh, during that, that whole campaign. On the Carter front, particularly in regards to foreign policy, there had been a theme for quite some time among both uh, National Review and Human Events and later in commentary, essentially, that the United States was retreating from the world. All three of these publications very much believed that communism remained a very, very dangerous scenario. It was it was continued to be very much a threat to the world. And the argument among those on the right was that Carter was completely foolish to dismiss this. And in this fa- in the famous Notre Dame um, speech that he gave or essentially uh, he said communism was no longer something that uh, the American people had to worry about. And yet there continued to be uh, wars of liberation supported by the Soviet Union all around the world, particularly in Africa and other parts of the globe. And those on the right who wrote for these publications continued to beat the drum about the, this very, very serious problem. Yeah, the idea of proxy wars is really a fascinating thing of the second half of the 20th century and the the continued support for them is really interesting. And what sort of justification do they use in advocating for them? Well, I think many of these publications looked at these issues through the lens of the Cold War. And they very much believed, to quote James Burnham's very famous book, that essentially this was a battle for the struggle of the world, right. for the world, that that you had two ideologies that were completely irreconcilable with one another, that that there was no way that both these ideas could continue to exist, that the idea of peaceful coexistence was complete hogwash, and ultimately the only way to defeat communism was to be more aggressive and ultimately roll it back all around the world, which is why uh, they had found Barry Goldwater so attractive and why Ronald Reagan um, was so, and his rhetoric early on, were so attractive to many of those uh, at these magazines. 
Right, so you mentioned Ronald Reagan, very attractive to these people, and, and certainly today, sort of this folk hero, the Republican Party, and justifiably or not, I mean, he certainly comes up a lot as this sort of main figure in, in the Republican Party, but for him, in terms of foreign relations, I think the thing that most people would immediately think of is the first foreign policy of Ronald Reagan, if it's not the Gorbachev speech, it's the Iran-Contra affair. So for for that, I, I, well, for you, which one of those two would you put as sort of the primary thing, at least in the public imagination, when people think about Ronald Reagan? And then as the follow-up would be, how did these publications address these two issues, which were very different in the way they were perceived by the public, certainly? Ronald Reagan had, had you know, he had great brevity and great humor. I always liked when he accidentally was giving, when he was giving a radio broadcast and somebody turned his mic on unbeknownst to him and he said he would he decided to end the soviet union forever and was going to begin bombing in five minutes uh <laughs> but but i i think one of the things that is interesting about reagan and, and i think comes up a lot and you see this particularly every presidential election because they always have at least one debate at the ronald reagan presidential library and, and i often believe that those on the right choose to portray President Reagan as far more conservative and far more ideologically rigid than he actually was. You have to remember that many on the right throughout their history, particularly as we moved into the post-war world, as the realization became that the Soviet Union was going to be a force to be reckoned with, that ultimately, as I said, it was going to be a struggle for the world, most of those on the right, uh, there was either the idea that we that we can't negotiate with the Soviets at all because ultimately one of two things happen. We either always get taken advantage of or we are giving a rogue regime credibility. So when Reagan, who had always wanted to rid the world of nuclear weapons, finally was able to meet with a Soviet leader as he jokingly said he'd love to meet with a Soviet leader when he first came into office. And years later, he said, except they all keep dying on him and he can't uh, <laughs> seem to get to one. But when he decided to meet with Gorbachev, there was a thunderous amount of opposition from those on the right. People like Norman Podhoritz at Commentary and Bill Buckley at National Review wrote columns very much opposed to Reagan meeting with with Gorbachev. And one of the great things about Ronald Reagan, and I think why he really is one of the 20th century's great presidents, is that Reagan was able to go beyond his ideology and do something that he believed, despite a great deal of opposition from members of his own party and his own intellectual elite, he did something that ultimately he believed would make the country better. And he certainly appreciated these publications, as I said earlier, but he didn't walk in lockstep with them. He didn't walk in lockstep with the conservative wing of the Republican Party, because ultimately he understood that when you're in politics and you have to make real life decisions, a lot of times you have to be pragmatic. And ultimately, that is why I think Ronald Reagan was such a great success was 
Certainly he was conservative. Certainly he believed in conservative ideas, but he was able to kind of look beyond those ideas or look, or look beyond that um, ideological prism and do something that stood the test of time. So it would be unfair then to talk about the or, or to suggest then that Ronald Reagan is the product of these magazines or arguably the first media president, because you mentioned that he started reading these things in the 1950s. But you're, you're suggesting here that he has enough of a of an individual ideology and a framework that he's not sort of bending to the will of outside influence. Oh, yeah. Well, I think one of the things for many years, uh, really up until, uh, I'd say, a couple of, of decades ago when you had Kieran Skinner's books, uh, Reagan in His Own Hand, and the, this large volume of Reagan's letters, Reagan's Own Hand being these radio broadcasts that he wrote uh, for these series of radio commentaries that he gave during the 1970s. Uh, Reagan was a guy who was who was who in, who was a voracious reader, remembered everything he read, was able to process ideas, appreciated ideas. Certainly, I'm not saying that he was some great intellectual, but there were certain ideas fundamentally that he agreed with. And I think over time, reading these magazines helped clarify his views and opinions on these issues. They certainly gave him the latest news on a particular subject, maybe slanted uh, in a way that that he favored. Reagan was talking about, you know, we, we, it's so interesting that you look at where the Republican Party is now and you look at where the Republican Party was during Reagan's time, uh, even before he became president. I've been looking at some speeches at the Hoover Institution that Reagan gave in the 19, early 1960s, late 1950s. And Reagan believed in American exceptionalism. Reagan believed the country was an idea. Reagan believed that America was a place people came to who were under threat from other places around the globe. It's, it's very interesting to me how that idea, that major thesis, which was such a big, big part of what Reagan talked about throughout his life, has really completely dissipated in the time that 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 we're living in. So I think Reagan was somebody who appreciated ideas. And I think over time, as he learned, because Reagan was constantly learning as he grew, moving from film actor to politician, uh, and I think you really see that from uh, going, you know, starting in his early political career or early beginning political career when he was giving speeches at GE that were becoming more and more political, all the way up through uh, his meeting with Gorbachev. And that to me is what uh, leaders do is they are able to evolve over time and look at situations in front of them and, and adapt to changing times and attitude. And yeah, certainly Reagan was very good at that. And even if you look at sort of the difference between his first term and his second term, right? Noticeable changes uh, between those four year stints based on what's going on around him. Right. That's very true. I mean, obviously the first, the first term or certainly the first uh, couple of years really were focused on the economy 
And yeah, then yeah. Uh, as you as you moved forward, obviously Reagan's the shooting had a, a big effect on him, as he's as he said, you know, he believed that he had been given another chance that that fate had intervened, given him another chance. That was one of the reasons he sat down and wrote that letter to uh, Leonid Brezhnev talking about how he swear how he saw a world uh, nuclear free and how important uh, it was for him to to ask to uh, to achieve that. Now, I'm curious, just as an overall, though, for people coming to this book, because I think in in 2018, uh, it's almost impossible that someone will pick up this book with the title, uh, the subtitle of The Influence of Conservative Media on U.S. Foreign Policy and not have some sort of pre-existing opinion on conservative media. If you're a vociferous consumer of it and you love it, then you'll have a positive view of the role conservative media has had on American society, American culture, and American politics. If you are on the left and think that the conservative media is damaging, if you sort of watch what Jon Stewart did all those years, and sort of once a week he would do 10 minutes on how he hated Fox News, and if you're somebody who watches that and thinks that the conservative media is bad, then you're going to come to this book, obviously, with that perspective and and think that these forerunners of what's going on now are sort of, you know, almost patient zero, if you will. So I'm curious for you in crafting this narrative, one, if you made any sort of thought to that and sort of the pre-existing thoughts people would have towards conservative media, pro or con, depending on their own ideology. And then two, whether or not this book helps to then inform people in a way that they can be more critical and more sort of more, more I don't want to say more intelligent, but uh, but I'll, I can't think of a better way to say this, like, like just more aware of the media that they are consuming and its ideological perspective and what it is trying to achieve. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I think the um, as we said earlier, the, the party is very, very divided. Uh, there is one way or another, one can call it incredible dysfunction in Washington. None of these, nobody seems to be willing to work together. Nobody seems to be willing to reach across the aisle. In regards to this book, if you think about it, the three conservative, uh, the three branches of conservatism that I write about in this book were very different. The personalities were all different. You had a group of people who worked for a newspaper, Human Events, that had originally been isolationist and protectionist and then subsequently had become much more mainstream once the Soviet Union had developed the atomic bomb. We had the National Review conservatives who were a part of what one could call fusionism, where you had all of these three different groups all represented under one banner. And then we had uh, neoconservatives who were these disgruntled or disenchanted Democrats who were very unhappy with the state of their party, particularly in regards to foreign policy. So all the ideas that were written about by these magazines were very similar. I mean, one can argue, which would seem almost impossible if you think about it today, all of these groups essentially came together because they all opposed the idea that uh, 
America seemed to be retreating from the world. They seemed to be allowing the Soviet Union to take advantage not only of the United States, but of all of these other nations to essentially seeming to do whatever they wanted to do. And the United States seemed to be not seemed to be unwilling to do anything to stop them. So in a sense, it was and this is a maybe a little bit uh, overblown, but I kind of would view it as a partnership in a way that all of these groups work together in order to um, bring someone to the fore who perhaps or endorse somebody or promote somebody, which they ultimately all did with Reagan, uh, to bring someone to the fore who would ultimately be able to carry out a more aggressive foreign policy than what we had previously uh, seen. On the other side, to answer your other question about um, ideology, I think if you look back to the early, well, let's just not say the early, but in the 1950s or the late 40s, you had what was really called Me Too Republicanism, which is ultimately where neither side seemed to be, and I'm speaking, I'm not talking the particular right or the left, but those, those like the Eisenhower Republicans and say somebody like um, the Republican, the Democrats under Lyndon Johnson, th- there really was not much of an ideology there at all that ultimately the policies seemed to be notably very similar. There was no clear difference in the two-party system. Uh, a Democrat might say, well, I'd like to, I kind of love this idea of, uh, you know, this, this inner highway system that Eisenhower wants to do. So what? It's an enormous big government program. And a Republican might jump in and say, yeah, me too. Right. You know, there really wasn't any, any real difference. The publications that I write about, particularly National Review, really changed that. And once publications like National Review and Human Events uh, emerged, and particularly someone like a Bill Buckley, who became more and more notable, and as Buckley's career grew and he became more involved in politics, and you saw things like the rise of the conservative party in New York, the parties really did become very, very different. And we can say that's good or it's bad. But that's why Buckley, in my opinion, was a transformative figure. He really changed the Republican Party. So the party actually, again, whether you agree with these ideas or don't, really stood for something. You could really see what the differences were between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And I think if you read this book and read the rhetoric that was were utilized by all of these different publications, you really see that. You really see how powerful ideology is, how often, how perhaps detrimental uh, narrowness of view is. And I think it gives us a good sense of why we're in the situation we are in today, particularly in regards to the differences between liberal media and really the power that the conservative media has become. Yes, and it is certainly very influential. Uh, you mentioned sort of off the top the just cacophony of conservative media outlets that you have. 
today that are extraordinarily powerful. And yeah, it's almost like you can see a line between these magazines, the rise of conservative talk radio in the 1980s, the advent of cable news, Fox News, 90s, 2000s, then all these websites. And, and it seems like with each new incarnation, they become more powerful and more influential. Yes, I, I, I think that's that's true. And I think Fox is, is the example of this. And obviously, yeah. um, it, Fox has really become uh, an arm uh, or uh, a great advocate for for President Trump, who uses Fox News on some levels in the way Reagan used National Review and commentary, both men reading or rather watching Trump, watching Fox News, obviously Reagan being uh, reading these various uh, publications and ultimately then both men bringing people from these outlets into their administration to promote uh ideas that they very much agree with yeah so so as you say perfect reason to pick up the book uh, to get a sense of where we are today how we got here and again the title is paving the way for reagan the influence of conservative media on u.s foreign policy from our friends there at the university press of kentucky uh, I think this is my first time, I have to say, uh, LJ, that this uh, I think is the first time I've uh, been in communication with anybody from the University Press of Kentucky. So I'm always excited to uh, be talking to new presses. <laughs> Absolutely. And they, they do a lot of good work and uh, put out quite a number of thoughtful volumes about American conservatism uh, and American politics. Yeah, so definitely check them out and uh, uh, pick up the book. You can also find LJ here on Twitter. You're pretty active on Twitter, uh, with uh, you know as as a political historian should be uh, in these days. Uh, at Lawrence Jerdom, so L A U R E N C E J U R D E M. Lawrence Jerdom at Lawrence Jerdom. There you can follow find him there and the website lawrencejerdom.com. So find all the stuff there, check out the book, and uh, very much appreciate the time today, LJ. Thanks, Sean. I really enjoyed it. Again, thank you so much for um, letting me come by. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, always welcome here. Uh, if anyone has any questions or comments for the show, please do email at historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever. Please do subscribe to the show, iTunes, Google Play, all that fun stuff. Give us a rating. And a like, uh, help us boost the uh, the spread of this. So uh, just give us a little shout out there. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with another new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.